0: I love that song. I love this church. I love that we're about the gospel and about God's grace. And we're not a church that emphasizes moralism and pragmatism and a bunch of how-to stuff. I would rather sing how great the Father's love for us than how great the Father's lists and demands are for us to try to measure up. So much better to say, what, what should I gain from His reward? Why? Why? all because of what Jesus did and not what we do, and that's what I love about this church is that is our emphasis, and in fact, I wasn't going to say this, but Piper, our little 5 year olds over there, she just looked at me, we were going to bed last night, she said, I can't wait to go to church tomorrow, and I said, what do you like most about church? She said, hmm, most of all the gospel, and then crafts. And I love that about our church here. Our kids hear about Jesus. They hear about the good news. So, well, what is the gospel? It's that God loves us even when we keep doing bad things. Yes. So, let's pray. Read scripture here. Psalm 127, verses 1 through 3. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, yet again we turn to you as the architect, financier, and builder of everything that matters and lasts, including the lives of our kids and grandkids. Thank you for reminding us in this great scripture that our children are your gracious gift not our science project. Continue to use your gospel wrecking ball on the graceless ways we parent. Free us from being overbearing or underbelieving, too disengaged or too enmeshed, full of fear or lacking in faith. Continue to rescue us from relational laboring in vain, assuming a burden you never intended parents to bear. Father, only you can make the gospel beautiful and believable to our kids. Only you can give anyone a new heart. You've called us to parent as an act of worship, to parent as unto you, not as a way of proving our worth, saving face, making a name for ourselves. It's the height of arrogance to think our quote-unquote good parenting Accounts for the best of what we see in the lives of our children. And it's a lie from hell to assume our imperfect parenting is the only reason our kids make poor choices in life. Free us, Father. Free us and forgive us. We put unfair pressure on our children when we parent more by fear and pride and less by your love and grace. Since our kids are your inheritance, Father, Teach us how to care for them as humble stewards, not as anxious owners. As hopeful encouragers, not as self-appointed sheriffs. Grant us quick repentances when we fail them, and multiple kindnesses and words of life for them. Father, we want to love and serve our children in line with the truth of the gospel. So very amen, we pray in Jesus' faithful and powerful name. Psalm 127. We're back in our series, Films for Radio, our journey through the Psalms of Ascent. Remember, these are songs that ancient Israelites would sing as they journeyed to Jerusalem three times a year to worship Yahweh, the Sovereign Lord. I told you several weeks ago that we should laugh a lot, that the gospel actually frees us to laugh more because Jesus paid it all, because it is finished, because the pressure is off, we should be freed up to laugh more and enjoy life. And one of the sources that I go to for laughter is comedian Jim Gaffigan. In his book, Dad is Fat, he explains how people reacted when he and his wife got pregnant with their fourth child. He says this, We were questioned as if we were curious oddities at a freak show. What's that like? I explained what it was like having a fourth kid very simply. Imagine you are drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. That question just comes with the turf if you have a large family. You always have people throwing that question in your face. Are you done yet? As if it was any other business. I think Jim Gaffigan goes on to say one of his responses is, Why? Are you paying for the college tuition? What are you concerned? In my experience, our experience, Heather and I with six six kids, that question is usually followed by these questions. Are you Mormon? Are you Catholic? And then sometimes they ask, do you watch the Duggars show? To which I reply, no, I don't watch the Duggars. I watch The Walking Dead. And when there's a zombie apocalypse, I already have an army to help defend me. So good luck to you. In ancient Israel, the duggers were the norm. You wanted a big family. You needed a big family. If you had a large family in ancient Israel, then you would agree wholeheartedly with theologian Bobby McFerrin. In a song that any Israelite would love to sing and hum and whistle, Bobby McFerrin said these words: "Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. Like good little children, don't worry, be happy. If you had a large family in ancient Israel, you didn't need to worry. You would be happy. You would laugh a lot. And that's exactly what Psalm 127 is about. And that's what Jesus says to us today and that's our big idea today don't worry be happy that's exactly what we all need to hear today because Jesus is sovereign over everything in control of everything and because he's working in and through everything for our good we don't have to worry and we can have joy today because of all that Jesus has done for us through his life death and resurrection. Our identity, our meaning and purpose in life is wrapped up in Jesus. But we're still sinners and we need to be reminded of this truth often. And that's Psalm 127's job. Psalm 127 touches this nerve in all of us. We all crave and desire to live a meaningful life. None of us want to live a pointless existence. And if this is your first time in church today, and you don't believe in God, you don't believe in Jesus, I believe that you still at your core have no desire to live a meaningless, pointless, fruitless life. You want your life to count. You want it to matter. We all do. And here's why. Because we all fear emptiness. We all fear fear nothingness. We all fear getting to the end of our life and wondering if we did anything that mattered, anything that counted. I mean, who wants to get to the end of their life and realize that they were a loser? That they failed at life? That they spent, say, 72 years on this planet, 24 hours a day, and it didn't matter. That they didn't make a difference in life. Who wants that life? Nobody does. But... If you want to live a pointless, meaningless life, well, Solomon tells you how in this psalm. If you woke up today and you thought, I know what I want to do with my life. I want to be a loser. I want to live a pointless, meaningless life, and then I want to die. Well, then Psalm 127 is gracious enough to tell you how. In this psalm, Solomon will tell you how to pull that off. But what he really wants you to do, as he gives you directions on how to live a pointless life, he wants you to realize that it's stupid to be stupid. He wants you and me to read his words in this psalm, to read his How to Be a Dummy for Dummies book, and then realize that we don't want to be a dummy. Isn't he kind? Thank you, Solomon. We're so stupid sometimes that we appreciate you helping us out. It's true. We're so foolish sometimes that we actually think that we can live life without God. We think that we're so smart that we can pull life off without Jesus. Imagine that. Human beings created by God trying to do life without God, without their creator. Well, Solomon has been there, done that, got the t-shirt, got the tattoo that he now regrets. And now he wants to help you and me not do the stupid things that he did. In Psalm 127, Solomon is trying to keep all of us from walking into the idiot store and running up up a bunch of credit. We can all be dummies sometimes, right? I mean, who here has not done something stupid at some point in your life and you regret it? Who here doesn't need some wisdom? And that's why Psalm 127 goes right after the jugular. It presses us where we all live, day in and day out. It, it squeezes us in a headlock. It yanks our arm behind our back and says, cry, uncle. And if we're willing to listen to the wisdom of Solomon in Psalm 127, we might just find that we get a good night's sleep. And who doesn't want that? I mean, at, at this point in my life... Success has been boiled down to getting a good night's sleep. You can have your sports car, your boat, your second home, whatever. All I want in life is a good night's sleep. And Solomon tells us how in Psalm 127. And now you're all really interested, aren't you? I struck a nerve, yes. So tell us how to get a good night's uh, sleep, Solomon. Well, he will in Psalm 127. So look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Unless the Lord, unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 127 is a song about divine providence Over all of our daily activities, we work, we eat, we sleep, we have babies, we retire. And whatever it is that we do in our lives, no matter how mundane, if we're not connected to Jesus, then ultimately it will be meaningless. Building a house, watching over a city, making babies, retirement, it's all pointless, it's all fruitless, it's all meaningless if we're not connected to Jesus. From the Bible's perspective, it's all done in vain. From the Bible's perspective, you're stupid if you try to do life apart from Jesus. Now, can I say that again as kindly and gently as I can? From the Bible's perspective, you're stupid if you try to do life apart from Jesus. And we don't want to be stupid, right? We don't want to live a life of meaningless do we? We want meaning and we seek meaning and purpose in many things in life. For some of us, it's work, family, children, spouse, grandchildren, the pursuit of pleasure, our possessions, our reputation, our position in the workplace or in the church or in the city, our relationships, our accomplishments. Now, let me ask you this morning, what are you depending on to make your life meaningful? What are you leaning on to make your life have value? What makes you get out of bed in the morning? What keeps you up at night? What's driving your fears and causing you to chew your fingernails down to the nubs? Where's your hope? What are you depending on for meaning? Solomon wants us to see that if Jesus isn't a part of our life, then it's all done in vain. If we're not following Jesus, then it's all futile. That, of course, does not mean that there is no such thing as common grace. Solomon is not saying that if you help a little old lady cross the street, then it's pointless. Yes, you did something good when you helped her cross the street. The little old lady certainly thinks that so. Solomon is saying here that helping the poor and serving others is not pointless. It has a purpose. Our goodwill to our neighbors has a purpose. That's why we're doing Serve Santa Maria. It has a purpose. The point is to help others, to alleviate suffering in this world. But what Solomon is doing here is painting with a very broad, generic brush about life in a fallen world. And if what we do is not connected to Jesus, then ultimately it's pointless. He's just painting in this broad generic brush. He speaks about children in this psalm, but Solomon never brings up infertility. He doesn't address the fact that some people want children and can't have children. He doesn't address losing a child. He doesn't address any of the fallenness of this world when it comes to having and raising children. He's just painting with this broad generic brush here. And that's what wisdom literature in the Old Testament does. And this is a wisdom psalm. So what Solomon is saying is that in the end, if you're not connected to Jesus by faith, this whole life, when compared to eternity, away from Jesus, suffering in hell, it's all pointless and done in vain. Solomon wants you to see your deep need of Jesus as you read his words. He wants you to see that if Jesus is not your treasure, then in the end... Your life was wasted. And Solomon doesn't want you or me to waste our lives. You don't have to waste your life. But you have every reason to worry if you put your life in your own hands. I just read Isaiah 31 verse 1 this week, which says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So if you want to buck against Isaiah 31 verse 1, go right ahead. You'll get bucked off of the horse of life so fast you won't know what hit you. Trust in self is a minefield. Trusting in yourself is a minefield. It's just a matter of time before everything in your life blows up. And who wants to live that way? Living without Jesus at the center of your life is like a complicated piece of ballet through a minefield. Living without Jesus as your treasure, as the center of your life, is like trying to pull off a complicated piece of ballet in the middle of a minefield. It's going to blow up eventually. And who wants to live a life with that kind of stress? Living without Jesus at the center of your life is like drowning and someone hands you a baby. Who wants that stress? Now, that doesn't mean that we simply trust in Jesus and do nothing ever. We are still called to do our part. We have to build the house, but it's pointless if Jesus doesn't have a hammer. We have to stay awake and watch over the city, but it's pointless if Jesus does not show up with the thermos of coffee. Solomon is giving us the secret of success and the recipe for failure in verses 1 through 2. You want success? You've got to have a relationship with Jesus. You have to be on team Jesus, united to him by faith. And if you want to fail, turn away from Jesus. Try to live life apart from God. That's failure. And here's how Solomon describes failure. Failure. He says you try to artificially lengthen your days. In verse 2 it says, You rise up early and go to late rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. When you try to artificially lengthen your days, getting up early, working late, you lose. You end up eating the bread of anxious toil. You worry. You stress. You toss and turn in your bed at night. It's like you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. You work hard and then you spend your evenings worrying. You worry and you're not happy. You labor and you work and exhaust yourself and you fall into bed and you're beat and you never really get any rest and it's all worthless. Of course, Solomon is not against working hard or even working some long hours. He's not opposed to that at all. In fact, Psalm 127 is a rebuttal of the age-old dream of having the proverbial easy life. Solomon knows nothing of the easy life. He knows that God is the one who came up with the idea of work. He knows that Adam was working in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. Solomon is not opposed to work. He's not opposed to working overtime. Solomon is not opposed to picking up a few extra hours. But at the end of the day, if your trust is not in Jesus to be the one who supplies you with everything that you and your family need, then you will burn out. It's lethal to live like this. Physically and emotionally, it is lethal and deadly to keep up this pace of rising early and going to bed late. But Solomon says that if Jesus is a part of your agenda, if he's a part of your life, if you are in union with him by faith, Solomon says, he will give you a good night's sleep. Verse 2 says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Yahweh covers his beloved with sleep as they are under the covers. Now, what does it mean to be God's beloved? The Hebrew word here for beloved is Jedidiah. It's the special name that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, gave to Solomon, the one who authored Psalm 127. He gave him this special name. His his regal, kingly name was Solomon. But the special name that Yahweh gave to Solomon was Jedidiah, my Beloved. That's an important question to answer. What does it mean to be God's beloved? You can today be God's beloved child. Ephesians 5.1 Paul says, as beloved children, the Greek idea of that word, beloved, there is it was used of an only child. And Paul's point is that God loves each individual Christian as if they were God's only child. Can you imagine that? Isn't that exciting? Right now, Christian, God loves you as if you were his only child. And you've seen parents with one child, right? I mean, that kid gets everything. Everything doled out on them, all the love, all the attention, the affection, the gifts, everything goes to that one child. And Christian right now, sitting in that chair, in spite of what you did yesterday, God loves you as if you're his only child, his beloved child. And Solomon here says, you can be God's beloved and he will give you sleep. Now the question is, how do you become God's beloved? To be God's beloved means that you fessed up to your sin, you fessed up to your rebellion, and you are trusting in Jesus. It means that you have been born again. It means that you have been justified, that you've been declared righteous by God because of what Jesus has done for you. It means that Jesus rejoices over you With singing. Isn't that amazing? Jesus rejoices over us the way a mother holds a baby and just sings and and cherishes that baby and holds that baby. That's how God feels about you right now, Christian. He's rejoicing over you with singing. That's what it means to be God's beloved. And He gives to His beloved sleep. Yahweh covers His beloved with sleep as they are under the covers. No need for a Tylenol PM. When you throw yourself down on the character of Jesus, you find that it's quite comfortable and you can sleep. Again, this is wisdom literature, though. So this is not a promise that you can claim and always get a solid eight hours of sleep, especially as you read what's coming in verse 3. Children. Those two things don't go together, do they? Sleep and children. Those sweet, cute, adorable, and precious little human beings that have a wake of keeping you up at night? If you have kids, then you know that verse 2 is not a rock-solid guarantee or promise that you will get a solid night's sleep. If you have kids, sleep is like a friend that you haven't seen in a long time, like since second grade. Jim Gaffigan describes trying to get kids to go to sleep at night in a chapter titled, Negotiating with Terrorists. And that's what it's like if you have kids. If you don't, God bless you. He says this, Bedtime makes you realize how completely incapable you are of being in charge of another human being. My children act like they've never been to sleep before. Bed? What's that? No, I'm not doing that. They never want to go to bed. This is another thing that I will never have in common with my children. Every morning when I wake up, my first thought is, when can I come back here? It's the carrot that keeps me motivated. Sometimes going to bed feels like the highlight of my day. Ironically, to my children, bedtime is a punishment that violates their basic rights as human beings. Once the lights are out, you can expect at least an hour of inmates clanging their tin cups on the cell bars. Inevitably, it becomes a large hostage negotiation, but in reverse. If you stay in there, we will give you whatever you want. What do you need, a helicopter to Cuba? We will meet all of your demands if you just stay in there and don't hurt anyone. And all the parents said, amen, right? Jim Gaffigan's phrase, negotiating with terrorists, does not contradict Solomon's words, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Solomon's point, of course, is that those who put their trust in Jesus, even after working long hours, even after negotiating with terrorists at night, they ultimately have to fall into bed trusting and knowing that it's all in God's hands, even when your kids wake you up in the middle of the night. You can sleep peacefully if you trust Jesus, meaning You won't lay awake at night stressing and wondering where the next meal is going to come from or if you'll lose your job in the morning or if you'll make it to the end of the week. You might be tempted by these thoughts and by these fears, but trusting Jesus and trusting in his promises will provide you the rest that you crave. Alec Motier said, rest is the antidote to our capacity for anxiety. We're all tempted to worry and be anxious, and the antidote is rest. It, it's slowing down, stopping, and trusting that Jesus knows what he is talking about. It's embracing the idea of Sabbath. It's realizing that Jesus, your Creator, knows what you need. Rest is the antidote to our capacity for anxiety. Solomon is telling us in Psalm 127 he's saying, Don't worry, be happy. Like Bobby McFerrin, Solomon is telling us, Here, I give you my phone number. When you worry, call me. I make you happy. Solomon knows that this is God's world, and we live most happily when we acknowledge that. Rest is the antidote to our capacity for anxiety. So the opposite of rest is not work, but restlessness. The opposite of rest is not hard work. The opposite of rest is restlessness. And you'll be restless in this life if you're not connected to Jesus by faith. Hard work by itself is not what counts. The most important thing in all of life is your relationship with Jesus. And if that is non-existent, you will be miserable and you will be restless. This is God's world, and we live most happily in it when we acknowledge that truth, and then we rest in it. But, when Solomon encourages us to rest, and says that God gives sleep to his beloved, Solomon is not saying that we do nothing at all. When Solomon commends rest, he is not saying let go and let God. In fact, he's saying the opposite. What Solomon says in verse 3 proves that he's not opposed to work, that he's not opposed to exerted energy, that he's not opposed to sweat, that he is not opposed to us doing our part, because Solomon gives the premier example of what it looks like to do your part while trusting in Jesus to do his. And what is the premier example of doing work, us doing work, and then God doing his work? It's having children. Look at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, from Yahweh, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Solomon uses this Hebrew word here at the beginning of verse 3. Behold, which means... Look, see with your own eyes, come into the story, come into the psalm and look around it and observe and catch it with your own eyes what I'm saying. He's telling us to open our eyes and see that work is required to have children. Children are proof that the wisdom of Psalm 127 is true. Work is required to have children. We do our part and God does his. And what do we do to get sons and daughters? Very little. What do we do to bring babies into this world? Very little. We do our part, which is very little when you think about it. And then we trust in and bank on God doing all the stuff that we can't do, which is to form another human being inside the womb. That's what God does. We do very little, and God does some amazing work, which is why we're against abortion here at Grace. Because human beings have value. It's why we're against racism. The fact that someone could hate another individual because of the color of their skin is evil. And we're against that because of the work that God does in the womb when he creates human beings. The call of Psalm 127 is this. Do your part and then dive into life and enjoy it. The obligations and the privileges. And then rest and rely on Jesus to do his part. That's the wisdom of Psalm 127. Dive into life and just enjoy it. Enjoy the ride. The obligations, the things you have to do, and then the privileges. And then just rest and rely on Jesus to do his part. So what Solomon is telling us is that although we have a small part to play in building a family, we're really helpless, aren't we? We're really helpless when it comes to making other human beings. We do our part. But Jesus has to do the big stuff. Namely, forming the child in the womb. We're helpless when it comes to that part. At this point in the sermon, I think Solomon would advise me to change our big idea just a little bit, just for a moment, to this. Don't worry. Be helpless. That seems strange because if you're helpless, then you might tend to worry, right? If I'm helpless... And that means, like, fear and anxiety and worry would bubble over. But not when you're connected to Jesus. In fact, being helpless is what connects you and me to Jesus. Weakness opens the door for us to see Jesus, the one our soul loves. Weakness is what connects you to Jesus. See, we all want to discard our weakness. We want to discard our helplessness before we approach God. But that's the key to coming to Jesus. I mean, we all want to have our ducks in a row when we approach God, don't we? Well, I was good. I was good this week, so I'll just march on in and see my Savior. We all want to discard our helplessness and our weaknesses before we approach God, but that's the key to coming to Jesus. You can build a home, but you're helpless without Jesus. You can stay up late guarding a city, but you're helpless without Jesus, no matter how much Starbucks you drink. You can be intimate with your spouse all you want, but you're helpless without Jesus when it comes to having kids. That's one of the reasons why Solomon brings up children in this song, because children are good at being helpless. Aren't they? Children are great at being helpless. It does not faze them. It does not bother them at all. Kids have no problem being helpless. It's us adults who do. Children do not mind asking for help, do they? They're wise enough to know that they are helpless and they seek out a helper. It's the grown-ups in this room that have an allergy to helplessness. We're allergic to it, aren't we? I was just reading in John 21... This morning, it's probably why Jesus, after the resurrection, do you know what he calls the disciples? Children. They're fishing in the boat. He's on the shore. And he didn't say, hey, guys, it's me. Children. So I started thinking, why? Why does Jesus call his friends children? Why is that one of the first things that he addresses with them? It's because he wants to remind them, you're always going to be helpless. You're always going to be weak. You're always going to need me. You're just children. And then what does he do? They come to shore and he says, come and have breakfast. Those are some of the most beautiful words in scripture to me. That Jesus just says, come and have breakfast. And he's got some fish and bread there for him. The lesson I think that John's trying to get across to us, that Jesus was trying to get across to the disciples, is that we are always children Always need help, always weak, always need to be served. And, even more staggering, is that Jesus is thrilled to serve us. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is thrilled to say, come and have breakfast. But we don't like to admit that we're weak, do we? We, we don't want to be children. We can handle life on our own, right? Right? The greatest struggle that we will face in this life is not trying to discover and ascertain God's will, God's will for our life. The greatest struggle is discovering and then disowning our own wills. That's the greatest struggle that we have. We like to think that discovering God's will for our life is the greatest struggle. Everybody's like, I just want to know God's will for my life. It's like the greatest struggle. If he just told me, the greatest struggle in our lives, Solomon is telling us, is discovering our own selfish will and then abandoning that and running and resting in Jesus. Solomon tells us that God's will for our life lives here in this psalm. Work, eat, sleep, make babies, have a family, and enjoy life. The hard part is discovering and then discarding our own wills. Because we want what we want when we want it, don't we? And we want it yesterday. Paul Miller said, we can't pray effectively until we get in touch with our inner brat. We want our way, our will. We all have our own inner brat. We all have our own inner Veruca Salt. Do you remember Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? girl in the red dress that was just a spoiled, rotten brat. Now, before you throw her under the bus realize that God in his common grace has given that to humanity to say that's you. We all have our own inner veruca salt. We all want what we want when we want it. We want to do life our way apart from Jesus and his wisdom. That's verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 127. Life apart from Jesus which is very miserable. Apart from Jesus, our lives are pointless, miserable, and lacking true joy and laughter. The best stuff that you can get from life apart from Jesus is empty. It will not fill you up. True freedom comes, true satisfaction, true laughter and joy comes when you can admit that you are, in fact, helpless. To come to Jesus, you have to wear a name tag that says, Hello, I'm helpless. Psalm 127 is telling us that helplessness is how the Christian life works. From beginning to end, the Christian life is all about being helpless. And so the sooner you and I embrace our weaknesses, the sooner and I, you and I embrace our helplessness, the sooner we'll start enjoying life. And isn't that what you want? Don't you want to enjoy your life? I mean, you're here. Might as well enjoy it, right? Don't you want to enjoy your life? The sooner... We embrace our weaknesses and see them as gifts from God. Now, I know that sentence sounds strange. Weaknesses as a gift from God? Absolutely, because it drives you to Jesus. And isn't that what your heart really wants? So, the the sooner you and I start embracing our weaknesses as gifts from God, embracing the fact that we're helpless, the sooner we're going to start enjoying life. I want to enjoy life. I'm tired of being a miserable curmudgeon, I'm tired of being a cranky dad. I'm like the dad on the wonder years. He's always angry, always upset. I want to be the the dad on growing pains. Remember uh, Dr. Seaver? He's just so gentle and patient, kind. I'm tired of being a jerk being miserable. I want to enjoy life. So I'm, I'm learning at age 44 to just embrace my weaknesses and my helplessness and let that lead me to Jesus. And I'm banking on him transforming this wicked heart. That's the wisdom of Psalm 127. Embrace your weakness and then dive into life. Enjoy it. Enjoy work. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your kids. Enjoy retirement. Enjoy all of the obligations and privileges. And then rest and rely on Jesus to do his part. And then just laugh. Just laugh. Just get used to being needy and helpless and you will start enjoying life. Now, I know that sounds weird, but it's true when we finally accept the fact that this is God's world and we're dependent on him, then everything that comes into our lives, we can accept. The traffic when you drive down to L.A., I did not accept that as a gift from God last week. I needed Solomon's phone number to call him and say, remind me again what you said in Psalm 127. The slow checkout line at the grocery store when someone has 50 items in the 10 item and under thing the slow checkout line at the grocery store, the whining child, it can all open a small door from our souls to Jesus. This is how practical Psalm 127 is. Jesus gets all up in your business and he wants you to enjoy him as you go through life, work, marriage, family, raising children, retirement. Yes, you can enjoy Jesus as you raise and enjoy your children. Solomon tells us in verse 3 that children are a heritage, a blessing from the Lord. And they especially were in ancient Israel. And here's why. Because children guaranteed the future of a society. The same way that arrows and weapons guaranteed the future of a society. That's why Solomon says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. The idea behind this Hebrew word for blessed is happiness. And because of the way it's it's a plural construct form in the the Hebrew here, the way it's used, it could be worded, oh, the heavenly bliss. Oh, the blessedness of the one who fills his quiver with children. In ancient Israel, it was considered heavenly bliss to have many children. Now, why? Why? Because when you got old, your children would take care of you. They were your inheritance, your reward. They would help work the land that you could no longer work because of your age and health. And that's Solomon's point in verse 5 when he says, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The man or woman who had many children would have people to defend them. Like at the city gate where civil matters were discussed. And when you became old and weak and easily taken advantage of, your children would rise up and protect you. They were your arrows, your weapons. You needed a strong posse to defend you. And your children would be those arrows and those weapons that did defend and protect you. So happiness in the ancient Near East meant having a quiver full of arrows, a quiver full of children who protected you when you were old and gray. And you know what? When you become old and gray, you have to become a child again, don't you? Old people have to relearn what it means to be helpless. They have to embrace being dependent on others. That's Psalm 127 wisdom. Think about this. God's original universal health care plan, care for the elderly, and retirement, it was children. That was Psalm 127, wants to remind you of. God designed it this way and you would be eternally blissful if you had many kids to care for you as you got older. Children are God's original design for a universal health care plan. And built into this is the understanding that we are weak, that we're helpless. Just like when we came into this world and just like when we leave this world, we're helpless. We need others when we get old. That's the wisdom of Psalm 127. You are weak and you need others. And that's never more true when it comes to being made right with God. We can't be good enough no matter how hard we try, can we? We can't be good enough to be made right with God no matter how hard we try. Life without Jesus is like you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. You just kick and tread water and there's no end. That's what it's like trying to go through this life, doing it on your own. And so Jesus came to bring us to God because we have no way of truly doing it on our own. Sure, just as we work hard in this life and try to lengthen the days, we are also guilty of trying to get to God on our own, apart from Jesus. But that's... We can't. We need a redeemer. We need someone to rescue us. And so the gospel is good news for bad people like us. It's good news for bad people who are trying so hard to be good. But we just can't pull it off, can we? We don't just exhaust ourselves with our jobs and with our family life. We also labor and exhaust ourselves trying to be good enough, trying to earn God's favor And trying to maintain his favor. Working so hard. I just want to work so hard and be good enough so he will like me. But he does, Christian. He loves you. We do that. We work hard to try to earn God's favor and maintain it. Which we can't. Only Jesus can do that. But we try. And we're exhausted. And we're beat. And we're tired. And we're worn out. We're exhausted from trying to be good enough. We try and try and try. And we never succeed. We just simply cannot be good enough to earn God's favor, to meet his standard of righteousness. And so the deepest fear that we have, the fear that's beneath all these fears, is this fear of not measuring up with God and with others in life. This fear of judgment. It's this fear that creates the stress and the depression of our everyday life. And this is one reason we work ourselves to death. We exhaust ourselves trying to impress other people, trying to measure up. We have high school reunions, and we want to show up with an impressive resume, don't we? And we try to convince others through social media that we got it together. I mean, really? Because we spent 30 minutes making our plate look good? Is that really? They must have their life together. Look at how they arrange. We all know you arranged your steak and your asparagus that way and put the little dab of butter on, those, on, the, on that uh, baked potato perfectly. We all know that, right? Right? You spend 20 minutes doing that. Your food's cold. You you think we're going to look at that and say, they've got it all together. But we all do it, don't we? I just let the cat out of the bag and lost my place on my notes. We try to convince others through social media that we got it together, and Psalm 127 comes along and confronts our vanity and tells us how it is. It's pointless, it's useless, it's fruitless. Jesus came to secure for us what we could never secure for ourselves. And because of that, life doesn't have to be a tireless effort effort to establish ourselves, to get the righteousness that we want and need, to justify ourselves, to validate ourselves. Deep down, we know that all of these endless projects and hobbies and the long hours at work and the distractions that we fill our lives with, we know deep down they don't hold the answer They're empty. They always leave us empty, and yet we run faster, and we commit to more and more and more, and we wear ourselves out, and sadly, we actually prefer busyness so that we won't have to face all the questions that haunt us in our quieter moments, right? We want to stay busy because we know these questions are just leaning against the wall, waiting for us to just slow down a minute so they can ask us. This is why the gospel is good news, because only Jesus was perfect. Only Jesus never sinned. He never tried to impress anybody on social media with his spectacular posts and pics and tweets. He never worked hard to earn people's favorable opinion. And in the gospel, he gives us his perfection, his perfect life, his righteousness and it comes to exhausted sinners like us who, despite our efforts, despite our exhaustion, we cannot fulfill the righteous requirements of God's holy law. So the world tells us in a thousand different ways that the bigger we become, the more famous we become, oh, then the freer we will be. And the richer and the more popular and the more beautiful we become and the more followers we get and the more likes we get and the more hearts we get and the more thumbs ups and the more retweets, then we'll be happy. And the more powerful we are, then we'll grow the more security, liberty, and happiness, that all that will come into our lives if we get all that stuff. And yet the gospel tells us just the opposite, that the smaller we become, the weaker we become, the more dependent we become, the more helpless we become, the freer we will be. And don't you want to be free? I want to be free. True freedom and satisfaction comes when we own up to our weakness and are connected to Jesus by faith. Being united to Jesus gives meaning to life. Being united to Jesus means that you can finally dive into life and enjoy it. Doesn't that sound like good news? Doesn't that sound like something Jesus said in Luke's gospel? Luke 12, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food. And the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, little flock, hey, little children, don't worry. Be happy. Why not take him at his word today? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are such a, we're a mess and a wreck. We try to find happiness and joy and satisfaction, in our reputation and in our jobs, our children. The list goes on and on, Father. And that true freedom and satisfaction and joy is being held out to us by your Son if we would just come and rest. Oh, Father, we want to be a church that just enjoys life. That yes, there's struggle and sorrow and sin, but through it all, God, we know that you are good. and We want to trust you for that. So would you make us a church that laughs more, enjoys life more, loves more, serves more for your glory and for the good of our friends and family members in this city, Father. Do that, we pray in Jesus' name.